Hello and welcome to the 1 Peter 5 podcast, episode 16. This is the podcast the devil doesn't want you to hear. How do I know? Because every time I tried to record this thing until I covered my computer in sacramentals, the audio wound up sounding like this. For the values, no, not even for the values, for the moral teachings of our Lord. That you're going to stand for the sixth commandment. That you're going to stand for us. That you're going to support our bishops, the few who are actually fighting the sodomite hordes. A little holy water and some St. Benedict medals, and strangely, that problem all cleared up. With that in mind, you may want to hear what I have to say. Coming up next... You're listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. We've got some stuff that we really need to talk about, and I wasn't planning on actually doing another podcast this quickly, um, let alone one without a guest. But I think that things are moving fast, really fast. And we just need to have a little conversation and all get on the same page. So I had a, a phone call from my wife just a few minutes ago. She is out right now taking my son uh, to the doctor. Just, you know, visit to the eye doctor, probably needs some glasses. And as she's driving, she has to turn off the radio because... On the radio, on the news channel, is a psychologist who is being interviewed and is telling uh, the the audience, the large audience, the largest news channel in our region on the radio, that uh, you know being transgender is just something that you have to accept and acknowledge. It's like having you know blonde hair or blue eyes. It's just a feature of who you are, and it's something that we all just need to accept. And my eight-year-old son. You know, begins asking my wife, well, what does that mean? What is that all about? What are they? I don't understand what they're talking about. Very perceptive. I told my wife to be careful because she has to go to the grocery store. And I said, right now, every single cover of every magazine in the aisle, as you go to check out, has some facet of the Bruce Jenner transgender story going on. You literally can turn left and right, and his face, which is now halfway toward looking more like a woman, is staring back at you with some headline screaming something or other. I'd like to read something to you. Um, and I just want to see what you think. News just broke that the Supreme Court has struck down the federal definition of marriage as a union between a man and a woman. This is an extremely disappointing development, but not a surprising one. This trajectory has been set in stone for quite some time. So what's next? What does today's ruling mean? First, it means that we've lost the war for the definition of marriage. A tiny minority of the population has changed thousands of years of social tradition, I can't fault those who will fight this decision and organize around it. But in my view, their fight will never rise above a valiant but ultimately futile effort. Second, 
And perhaps more importantly, this paves the way for the Catholic Church to become a hate group. When Father Joseph tells the homosexual couple that he can't celebrate their wedding ceremony, he'll be on trial for hate crimes and discrimination before he knows it. The First Amendment, like the Second, the Fourth, the Fifth, and the Tenth, is now being thrown under the bus. This also means that religious groups, if they want to retain any semblance of autonomy, are going to have to give up their tax-exempt status. It's done. The government wants its pound of flesh. Even without tax-exempt status, it's not any guarantee that the hate crime designation or discrimination lawsuits can be avoided. Just ask the business in Colorado being sued for refusing to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple, or the photographer in New Mexico still in hot water over refusing to photograph a gay quote-unquote wedding, or the florist in Washington State being sued by the state for not providing flowers, again, for a gay quote-unquote wedding. If you think these incidents are outliers, you are living in a fantasy world. Cases like this will come faster and faster following the ruling today. The government is using intimidation to force its agenda. From the IRS intimidation of tea parties, to these lawsuits against Christian businesses, to the threat of constant and overarching surveillance. And boy, oh boy, I can't wait until just opposing gay marriage on moral grounds becomes a crime. And then they can go into the big archive of emails and phone calls in the NSA database and find all the evidence of us talking about it in the past. Suddenly, you're a political dissident, after the fact. I wish I could offer a solution. I've got a lot of thinking and praying to do as well, as do we all. So this is an excerpt of an article that I wrote um, in June of 2013. It's almost two years old. I wrote it for catholicvote.org, and at the time they actually put a disclaimer on the top of this article. They said, note, the views expressed herein do not represent the official position of catholicvote.org. We present this commentary to help you form your own opinion. I wrote for a Catholic vote for, I think, two years. And this is the only thing I ever wrote that they felt the need to put a disclaimer on. And the reason that they felt that need is because I definitively stated that the Supreme Court striking down the federal definition of marriage was the turning point. It was the moment at which the battle was over. We have lost the battle for marriage. There are people saying even now that we haven't lost it. I saw an article last week. I think it was by Austin Ruse. They're deluding themselves. We have lost the culture. We have lost the society we have lost the battle. I mentioned three court cases that at the time were not well known. The photographer, the baker, the florist, all refusing to do gay weddings in, in different states. Well, what has been in the news for the entire last month? The baker, the pizza shop, you know, it's, it's all coming to fruition now. And I was trying to warn people that time was out because you could, if you were paying attention, you could see it coming. Time was out. The clock ran out. We were done. And we're still doing this rearward guard defensive maneuver where we're trying 
you know, to fight for the definition of marriage. And it's a noble thing, but guys, you're wasting your time. Right now, we need to be preparing for persecution because it's happening. Now, the thing I said in this article that you hadn't perhaps heard about now, and it's different than, you know, than the bakers and, and the florists, was about the idea of our faith becoming a, a hate crime. And that seemed pretty far-fetched to a lot of people. They thought that we were still ways off from that because, you know, after all, we have the First Amendment. But there's an article today uh, in the Washington Times. Actually, no, I apologize. It's not today. Someone sent it to me today. I'm looking at it again, and I'm realizing the date was October of 2014. So, you know, what, five, six months ago? Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, city officials have laid down the law to Christian pastors within their community, telling them bluntly via an ordinance that if they refuse to marry homosexuals, they will face jail times and fines. The dictate comes on the heels of a legal battle with Donald and Evelyn Knapp, ordained ministers who own the Hitching Post wedding chapel in the city, but who oppose gay marriage. A federal judge recently ruled that the state's ban on gay marriage was unconstitutional while the city of Coeur d'Alene has an ordinance that prevents discrimination based on sexual preference. The Knapps were just asked by a gay couple to perform their wedding ceremony. They refused, and they were facing a 180-day jail term and a $1,000 fine for each day that they declined to celebrate the same-sex wedding. I thought this was a current story because someone sent it to me today, so let's take a look. Let's see what happened to Donald and Evelyn Knapp, shall we? So we'll do a quick search. Interestingly, it appears that this is a story that has just gone away. I've looked through a bunch of websites. um, And the most recent information I can find on this case is November of 2014. There's a case, Knapp versus City of Coeur d'Alene. I don't know what's happening. The Alliance Defending Freedom is actually representing the Knapps. Very strange. But I'm sure this isn't the last case. I'm sure there are more. There will be more. This is happening now. It's not going away. It's getting worse. The bakery called Sweet Cakes by Melissa, which um, I believe is in Oregon, we're facing a, a $135,000 fine, a damages award, because they wouldn't um, bake a cake for a gay wedding. Again, they're just using this to pummel people financially, right? And so they did what uh, the pizzeria did before. There was a GoFundMe campaign, and they raised $109,000 uh, to help defray these costs, you know, crowdfunding this because a small bakery can't take a six-figure hit like that. And so what happens? Well, gay rights advocates complain to GoFundMe and they pull the fundraiser. Do you see where this is headed? This is not staying on the fringes. It's not going to stay there. You're going to get hauled in. You're going to get arrested. You're going to get fined. You're going to get sued for living your faith in this country, in the United States of America. And if you don't think so, 
Tell me, what's stopping it? You know, it starts small. It starts with these little specific incidences. But those specific incidences of bakers and florists and photographers, these people who serve the wedding industry, these are the canaries in the coal mine. And there are a lot of canaries now. These cases keep happening. And they're going to keep happening because this is the way that they terrorize us. This is the way that they make us afraid to speak up, to live our faith. We become like Lot in the city of Sodom, where we lock ourselves in our house and just don't go outside because everyone out there is doing horrible things and wants us to acquiesce, wants us to embrace what they're doing. It's time for us to wake up. And I don't know where to go, and I don't know what to do. Do you think I'm not worried about it? This is my business. This is what I do. I say these things out loud. And everything I think and everything I've thought for the past decade is all over the internet. Do you think that makes it easy for me to get a job? I would love to have 1 Peter 5 be my only source of income. That would be fantastic, even though it might make the target a little larger. But, you know, we're a donation-based business, and I have a large family. It's not cutting the mustard. So I am in a position where I could use another job. You don't think they're going to look me up, listen to podcasts like this, read the articles that I've written? I'm a marked man. What about you? Are you able to stand up for anything in your work? Are you afraid to put comments on Facebook because... Even on Facebook, in the privacy of your own little personal social arena, if you say you support traditional marriage, you can get fired from a Catholic school by a bishop who won't even come forward and say that he supports the teachings of the Catholic Church as laid out in the Catechism. Yes, I know that teacher was reinstated. I can't imagine how much fun work is for her now, going back to that place. But Bishop Bukowski had no problem ignoring a reporter who specifically cited the catechism and said, do you agree with the church's teachings as laid out in the catechism? He wouldn't respond. How many bishops are going to do the same? Archbishop Cordelione in San Francisco is all on his lonesome. Ain't nobody coming to his rescue right now. He's facing these protests by himself. Cardinal George said that he would die in his bed, his successor would die in prison, and his successor would die a martyr. I'll tell you what, (laughs) Bishop Supich is not going to die in prison for standing up for the traditional teaching on marriage. Not unless there's some major miracle that happens in his life, some major point of conversion. That's not his quote-unquote style of leadership. 
This is a man who suppressed the activity of the priests in his own diocese when they were trying to, to participate in the 40 Days for Life. And who made life for traditional Catholics under his reign miserable. He's not going to stand up for this stuff. He let the governor, he let the governor of Illinois, who is divorced and remarried, receive communion at Cardinal George's funeral mass. And he, the bishop, personally invited him. Our bishops are not going to do this for us. We're on our own. Yes, we will have a few. There will be good ones. When I talked to Bishop Schneider, Bishop Athanasius Schneider, uh, at his talk in D.C. in February, I came up to him and I thanked him for being a clear voice, for being a true shepherd when we have so few. And a concerned look came over his face and he leaned toward me and put his hand on my arm and he said, It is you. You must do this. The faithful your families. You must become holy. You must inspire the priests. You must stand for the faith. He was essentially telling me that we're on our own. There are too few bishops who will stand. Many of them because they're involved. The sodomy culture that exists within the clerical life does not just confine itself to the priesthood. There are bishops who are part of that cult. And it's a horrifying thing. There's something I want to share with you, and I'll do that in a little bit, but it pertains to all of this. So what are we to do? It's a hard one to answer, especially if you have a family. You know, I interviewed Ann Barnhart earlier this month, and she had to leave everything behind to stand up for the truth. I don't even know where she is. She's somewhere in the world in an undisclosed location because her unpopular viewpoints are so unpopular that she's well, she's not safe if her location is known. So that's great because she's one person, but I have six children. What about you? Where do you go? What do you do? How do you keep them away from it? Do you live in a bunker in the hills? I mean, I tell you what, right now I live 30 miles outside of Washington, D.C., and this area is a rabid hotbed of everything that is wrong with this country. And yes, there are plenty of good people here too. But in the 10 years that I've lived in Virginia, I've seen it go from a red state to a blue state. We vote more and more consistently democratic, which means we vote more and more consistently progressive. our policies continue to move leftward and it doesn't feel like a family-friendly state anymore. 
I live in a beautiful area, but I think maybe it's time for me to look at going somewhere else. And you know, that's hard. When you have to work and support your family, you need to be close to a city, to an economic center. Unless you've got the ability to make a living from wherever you are, you don't have much choice. And maybe, I don't know, if you're living in the rural heartland of America or in the Bible Belt, when you go to the grocery store, you're still seeing the same stuff on the shelves, right? You're still seeing Bruce Jenner and his lovely feminine features on the cover of the magazines as you go to just buy milk and bread and eggs. How do you get away from it? Do you literally never listen to the radio? I mean, this is a news and weather channel that I listen to all the time in order to find out about traffic and all this stuff. Why do I have to not have the weather on without having to worry about my kids being indoctrinated on transgender issues. I've been talking to my wife about this lately, more and more. I've said it for a while, but the conclusion that I just keep coming back to is what we have to teach our children and what we have to remind ourselves, the only thing they can't take from us is our souls. You know, Braveheart had it somewhat right. The only thing you can't take from us is our freedom. Yeah, well, sure. But freedom in its most specifically applied sense is about choosing the good. It's about doing what's right. It's about choosing God over the world. It's about staying in a state of grace so that no matter what happens, no matter what they do to you, because they will take your stuff. They will take your house. They will take your car. They will take your money. They will take your liberty. They will throw you in prison. They may even take your life. The only thing that they cannot take from you, ladies and gentlemen, is your immortal soul. So it had better be in tip-top condition. And you damn well better believe that the devil is coming for you. Every day. He will tempt you. He will trip you up. He will throw obstacles in your path that will make you angry. He will make you fight with the people you love by prompting you all to hear the worst and see the worst in each other in your words and in your actions. He will cause disunity in your family. He will give rise to sins that will divide. He will tempt you by telling you that all these things that you would just rather do are so worth it. And the minute you either give in to a sin or take a road which necessitates moral cowardice, some choice to not stand up for what is true or what is good, he will assail you with guilt for being a horrible Christian, a horrible Catholic. He will fill your mind with the doubts of why you even deserve salvation. Lawlessness in the world is something we can see, but it comes from a breakdown of order. There's lawlessness in the spiritual realm right now too. The devil and his minions are running amok across the surface of the earth and they are wreaking havoc with men's souls. 
Many of us, unfortunately, participate in the destruction of our own souls with very little effort or push from team evil. Others of us trying to do what is good and right within our own limited and facile capacities. He tempts us harder. He pushes us harder. He makes life difficult, sometimes unbearable, because he knows that if you're praying every day and you're asking and you're begging God for help with these difficulties and struggles and burdens, whether it's financial, whether it's interpersonal, whether it's marital, whether it's vocational, whatever it is, if you're struggling, just crawling on your bloody hands and knees up a steep hill, trying to do the right thing and move forward and, and fulfill the obligations of your state in life and you are failing, but you're begging God for help, he knows that to the extent that he can make your life miserable, he being the devil, that there is a chance, maybe even a good one, that you'll turn on God. That you'll say, how can you love me? You don't help me. Where are you in my life? Why is it that I ask and 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 nothing comes of it? Why is it that I see all this evil in the world and in the church and I beg you to just step in and do something? You're omnipotent. Where are you? It's your church. Why aren't you fixing it? Why aren't you cleaning it up? You know, are there really no good people left in this nation? Because I know people who are praying for it. Why does it continue to devolve? Why is nothing getting better and everything getting worse? Why is there no solace to be found? Because you can't even go to the churches and get the fullness of Catholicism. Because you could probably count on one hand the number of churches in your entire diocese that actually have perpetual adoration so that in the midst of the chaos, you can place yourself at the feet of our Eucharistic Lord. We are in the desert, the 40 days has turned into 40 years, has turned into a century. If you are within the sound of my voice, if you are listening to this right now, then you're young enough that you grew up spiritually malnourished. Most likely, there could be a few of you out there who are 80 or 90 years old, who maybe remember what things were like before they got really bad, but let me break it to you. They were already bad. The revolution that happened at Vatican II and thereafter, I'm sorry, the church doesn't change overnight. If, if the spiritual solidity is in force to resist it, everything changed. Everything was uprooted because everything was rotten. We had already lost our way. I will recommend again to you to read our three-part series entitled Revolution in Tiara and Cope, 
which was about the Masonic infiltration of the church. They mapped it out. They planned it. The popes tried to stop it. It happened anyway. I'll link to that in the show notes. Where can we run? Where can we hide? I am, for the first time in my life, seriously considering the possibility that I could end up going to prison for what I do. And it's surreal, and I can't really wrap my head around it. There's still some part of me in the back of my head that says, Really? Really? Do you really think that that's on the table? And I hope it's not. Because it's easy for me to sit here and do this. To write what I write and say what I say because I have freedom. Sure, things in my life have been difficult since I've started doing this. My family's taken a huge hit financially. Life is hard. We have been going through some really hard stuff. And I guess that's par for the course when you're trying to serve the good. But I have freedom. I'm sitting here looking out at the beautiful forest around my home. And I can sit here and I can do this and I can get up and I can walk around and go wherever I want to go and I could never do this again or what I, I mean I have I can do whatever I want. I'm limited only by my means and my imagination. But when the threat comes that I could really lose everything, that my family could lose me as a protector or as a provider, poor as I have done at that job, what then? Will I risk it? Will I still have the courage? Because people tell me I'm courageous because of the things I say. I'm not courageous. I just have a big mouth. I have a big mouth and an anger problem. I see these things that are going on and they piss me off. And I want to talk about it. And I want to tell you about it. And I want to shake people awake because that's what I do. Because I'm the big, loud, make everybody not like me guy. I hate conflict and I thrive on it. It's sort of my thing. But what do I do when they pass a law and they say, I can't say the things I'm saying now? Or maybe it'll be too late. Maybe they'll pass the law and then it'll just be retroactive and they'll go back and find stuff like what I'm saying and what I've written and 1 Peter 5 and the things I've done on other websites and I'll be the first one up against the wall. Can't really stop now. Doesn't make sense. If the threat becomes more active, what do I do? Duck and cover? What do you do? You know, do you lose your job? If you stand up for your principles, how do you support your family then? Oh, you've got a kid in college. You've got a kid with medical needs. You've got to keep that insurance plan. You've got to put food on the table. You have a limited set of skills. You only know how to do something that requires you to sit in an office. You don't know how to go build houses with your bare hands. You don't know how to do the skills that will keep you off the map instead of in front of a computer. 
we're all vulnerable. We are all exposed. We better start giving it some serious thought. And we better start being ready. We have got to make the decision now, 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 before it comes. How we're going to deal with it. What are we going to do? Start bracing for impact. Keep telling yourself and your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids every day. The only thing they can't take from us is our mortal souls. Be ready. Be pure. Be clean. Be prayerful. Love God. Even when it's hardest. Because he doesn't abandon us even when it feels like it. He is letting us undergo this trial. We were born during this time for a reason. We all have a role. Nobody is unimportant. Nobody is left out of account. You are important. He has a plan for you. You're part of this. You can either be, as they say, a part of the solution or a part of the problem, but I guarantee you his will for you is to be a part of the solution. We're a lot stronger if we stand together. If we let them use fear to make us all hide, we're going to crumble like a house of cards. Cheap cards. Not even the good ones. There aren't many of us left. There are not many faithful Catholics left. There are not a billion Catholics in the world. That's a lie. There are a billion people in the world who call themselves Catholic. If the statistics on contraception alone can be believed, roughly 8% of Catholics actually practice the faith on a fundamental issue like sexual moral teaching. 8%. That's 80 million people in a population of 7 billion You know what that comes out to? 1%. Give or take. About 1% of the world. We already are a remnant church. And when it comes to the leadership or the lack thereof from our bishops, well, that's something I want to talk to you about too. We'll do that after a break. Stay tuned. In a world where most Catholics have lost their way and eternal life hangs in the balance, a website arose to face the challenge of our darkest hour. One website with one mission and one desire to restore Catholic tradition, rebuild Catholic culture, and help the faithful prepare for and survive the gathering storm. That website was known only as One Peter 5. But with the forces of darkness and rising expenses gathering on all sides, the cause was destined to falter without your help. Please visit onepeter5.com forward slash donate today and make a tax-deductible contribution. The success of our mission depends on you. Coming soon to a computer near you, this fundraising event is not yet rated. 
Welcome back, everybody. Um, if you were looking for something lighter uh, this half of the podcast, then you have come to the wrong place. There's something I want to read to you. I mentioned in the first um, the first segment that the bishops, where are the bishops? They're not leading us. They're not coming forward. And the Bishop Schneider had said, basically, you're on your own. The faithful have to do this. The faithful have to lead this charge. Well, there's a blog post that I have come across that I think is absolutely dead on. And the blog is called The Eyewitness. Now, I don't know anything about this blog, so this is not a blanket endorsement of what else is there. I have not read through the rest of the site. But this post in particular, I think everybody needs to read it or to hear it. So here we go. It's called Dear Churchmen, Do Not Worry. The stench of sodomy is destroying the church from the lowest pew to the Vatican. Countless souls are going to hell because of this vice, a vice so awful that even the devil, having tempted men into committing this mortal sin, looks away in disgust. Unless these poor, wretched souls confess and receive absolution and amend their lives, they will be eternally damned. There, your excellencies, your holinesses, reverend fathers, we've said it now, so you don't have to. Now you can go back to what you were doing and not have to worry any longer about preaching against this vice. You can continue with your photo ops, your meetings with the high and the mighty. You can revel in all the good press you will receive from the media and sodomite-friendly presidents, and you don't need to be bothered with telling anyone that they are living in a state of mortal sin. We'll do that for you. We laymen, writers, bloggers, people in the pew, we'll relieve you of your duty to teach since you apparently aren't terribly interested in doing so. Don't preach sermons telling Catholics that contraception, abortion, and sodomy are destroying souls and destroying countries. That's not your job. Your job is to train altar girls and make sure we're all participating at what you call a mass and things like that. We'll take the hits, the lawsuits, the persecutions, the destruction of our livelihoods, perhaps even our lives, I guess, the opprobrium of the media and everyone else. We bakers and photographers will see our businesses ruined, our reputations torn to shreds, our bank accounts disappear, simply for the pleasure of relieving you of the burden to teach faith and morals. And you don't even have to visit us in jail if you don't want to. We'll watch our own churches shun us, our former Catholic friends abandon us, and our pastors studiously ignore us. We accept this because we know you don't wish to get your hands dirty by teaching the faith. You can continue to golf, go to the movies, sit on your thrones, smell your sheep, get interviewed on TV, receive the goodwill of imposters, heretics, blasphemers, and haters of Christ. Don't worry. We'll do your fighting for you. You have more important things to do. You have to scurry to Rome and share a glass of wine with the cowards who connive with our oppressors. You have to worry about the environment, about saying anything Christ-like that might offend rabbis or Hindus. Heaven forbid you try to convert them. There are meetings with happy clubs and happy organizations you must address. You must extol diversity and welcoming. This is what you must do. 
so please, don't trouble yourselves about having anything to do with Catholicism. Continue to sit on your collective rumps and enjoy the cheers of the crowd. Because, as I said, I guess we'll have to do your job for you. This is brilliant. Because this is where we are. This is what we're faced with, and this is what we have to do. You know, the irony is that Vatican II was said to have ushered in the age of the laity. The laity have been empowered. We get told this all the time. It's all about the laity. Well, I don't know about any of you, but I intend to make the most of that. And I intend to make the kind of people who seemed to think that that was a really great idea regret it. Because I do care about the faith. I do care about morals. I do care about promoting what the church actually teaches. I don't care about welcoming. I don't care about inclusion. I don't care about happy clubs and making people feel good about themselves. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in charity. I believe in kindness. I believe in helping people to bridge the gap between where they are and where they should be. I believe that the faith should be appealing because it's beautiful. But what I don't believe in doing is creating me church. I don't believe in narcissism. I don't believe in pandering. I don't believe in pastoral styles that don't include telling people that receiving the Holy Eucharist when they are in a state of objective grave sin is just, you know, a choice that's up to their conscience. I'm not okay with that. There are rules. There are standards. There are non-negotiable principles. And those are the things that we're going to stand on. And those are the things that we're going to fight for. And if you want to figure out where the leaders are that you should follow, look for the men who are doing those things. Look for the priests. Look for the bishops. And unfortunately, as difficult as it is for many of us to process, maybe looking to the Pope right now is not where you're going to find the leadership that you need. I know that that doesn't always make me popular when I say it. But the evidence is pretty substantial that he is far less interested in assuring those of us who actually adhere to the teachings of the faith that he will defend and guard it, as is his solemn and sacred obligation. He's not as interested in that as in meeting with trans transgendered people at the Vatican at Christmas time, or washing the feet of the transgendered on Holy Thursday, or Muslims, or, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to go down this road. It's unnecessary. You can read, do it, research it, look into it. He is not acting in the realm of spiritual fatherhood. He is not acting as I think any of us men would act or would be expected to act within the realm of our own domestic churches. Let's imagine for a moment 
that there was a, a man, a crazy man, who was threatening to come into our home at night and kill our family. And he was saying it out loud and he was saying it in public and he would see us at the grocery store and threaten us and you know, yell across the parking lot and tell us that he was coming and this is what he was going to do. And he was telling us that we were such miserable human beings that he was going to have mercy on us, mercy, and put us out of our misery. As a father, what's your reaction going to be to a man who's threatening your family in that way? Are you going to just say nothing? Are you going to co-opt him? Tell everybody what a great guy he is? How serene his thinking is? How, you know, the way that he expresses himself really shows that he gets down on his knees before he says anything? Are you going to promote his book or invite him to present his agenda to anybody who wants to hear it. When he speaks in your name and says that you're okay with him doing this to your family, are you going to say nothing? Are you going to correct nothing? And instead, are you going to find more people like him who agree with him and invite them into your home after they have threatened your family? Not me. As a father, you better believe I'm going to be sitting by the door with a shotgun. And if that man sticks his head in, he's going to lose it. I will tell my family before such a confrontation ever takes place. I will assure my children they will get to you through my dead body. And it's a big body that's full of rage. And it's not going to happen. I will assure my wife. I will make sure my family has the peace of knowing that no matter what comes, even if it means laying down my life for them, I will stand for my family, for its integrity, for its principles, and for the well-being of each member. So explain to me why. When there is a petition with over 150,000 signatures, who knows how much more? That was the last time I looked, and that was a month ago. Asking the Pope to simply make a public statement saying that he will uphold the Church's teachings on human sexuality, that he will protect the Sixth Commandment from the attacks on its integrity, that he will stand by the words of Christ his God, the man for whom he is the vicar on earth. Not the man, the God-man. Why has he said nothing? Why has he not assured his children? Why has he not publicly made a statement that he will defend his family, his spiritual children from all threats, no matter where they come from? Why is it that he can bring the homeless into the Sistine Chapel and tell them that this is their chapel. But he does not invite the families, the traditional masters, the people who actually have given everything to have large families like rabbits, 
and have stood on principle at the cost of, of earthly success and wealth? Why has he not invited them to the Sistine Chapel and told them that it's theirs while he celebrated a mass according to the extraordinary form and then preached a homily about how he will stand for what Christ taught about the Sixth Commandment and that we need not worry because he will defend us. He will protect his spiritual children. He will not let these enemies come into the church and have their way with the faithful. Why? Explain to me why. It's not as though he doesn't know. He has no problem promoting those who wish to do damage. He has no problem empowering Casper and Daniels, who, by the way, in addition to protecting pedophiles, has now been revealed to have petitioned the King of Belgium to make abortion legal. A cardinal. Casper Daniels Forte, who wrote the troubling language on homosexual relationships that was in the mid-Synod Relatio. Baldessari, who supports the Casper agenda and was appointed by the Pope to be the Secretary General of the Synod. Maradiaga, who believes that the heresy of modernism has been reconciled with the Church through the First Vatican Council. I mean, through the Second Vatican Council. He was condemned at the First. Marx, who has essentially made a statement of schism, of heresy, saying that the German church is not a subsidiary of Rome and does not need to wait for Rome's pronouncement to make its own decisions. Why are these men not being disciplined? They are threatening the Catholic family. Why is our spiritual father not defending us? He is the Pope. Don't get it in your head that because I have a problem with my father being an abusive alcoholic, and yes, the analogy applies, that he's not our father. Until a successor of St. Peter or a council of the church says otherwise, he is the Pope. End of story. I don't have the authority to say otherwise. And so what we have is a Pope who's not doing his job. And it's time. Ladies and gentlemen, the battle lines are already drawn. We are already starting to see the first American priests come forward and say that they will not comply with any dictate coming out of the Synod that says that they have to give communion or absolution to members of the faithful who continue to willfully violate the Sixth Commandment. And that's a movement that's going to grow. And we're going to help it grow. We have no more time. It's almost May. The Synod is in October. And this summer, I think, is going to be the deadline for choosing a side. Because come November, this church of ours is not going to look the same. It's not going to look the same. Things are going to be different. We're going to be more divided than ever before. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. The only thing we can do is be prepared. Start 
identifying whether your parish is a safe place. Start identifying whether your pastor, and this goes for everybody. You know my biases for the traditional Latin Mass. I believe that it is a stronger bulwark against these errors and heresies that have infected the world than the Novus Ordo, which was, as Anne Barnhart says, conceived in malice. But both are valid Masses. And in a Novus Ordo parish with a good pastor, you may have a man who says he's willing to die on that hill. That he is willing to put his priesthood and even his life on the line to protect the Holy Eucharist and to protect our Lord's teaching about the Sixth Commandment. Find a parish you can trust. Identify a place you can go. Because when this happens, it's going to happen fast. It's going to happen virtually overnight. It took them six weeks, by most accounts, to change the entire paradigm of liturgy between the old mass and the new. Six weeks, and they had turned the altars around and changed the language and changed the liturgy, and everything was never the same again. It's going to take less time for this. I mean, it's already happening now. So be ready. What's your escape plan? It's just like knowing what you're going to do when there's a fire in your house. Where do you go? Where do the kids gather? They go by the mailbox? Which exit do you take? How do you check and make sure everybody's there? Be prepared. There are going to be some of you, perhaps, who think that this is hyperbole. That this is not really going to come. You know, And we do. We get a lot of uh, alarmism, a lot of fear-mongering. Because our world is on a trajectory that is clearly unsustainable, and yet it continues, it persists, and the status quo is maintained. But I think that it's one of the greatest weapons used against us, that maintenance of the status quo beyond the breaking point of credulity. There's no way, if things are really this bad, that they could continue to seem this okay for this long. And it lulls us to sleep. There's no more sleep. Pick a side. And when I say pick a side, I don't mean pick a faction. I don't mean decide whether or not you like the Pope. I don't mean pick a bishop over another bishop. What I mean is choose to adhere to the truth and the teachings of the church. Choose to adhere to the teachings of Christ and the Gospels. We have been handed a deposit of faith and it has been certified by 2,000 years of consistency. These guys now who want to try to change everything, who want to remake the church in their own image, they're deceivers, they're liars, they're thieves. They have broken in to our home and are threatening our families. We must resist them to the face. And you will be attacked. You will face spiritual repercussions. You will. You will be tempted. You will be maligned. You will find strife in places where there was formerly peace and harmony. You will face obstacles not of your making that are difficult to surmount. Trust in him. It's all we have. 
He will make provisions for us. Keep your nose clean. Stay in a state of grace. And if you fall, don't listen to the whisper of the enemy that you are undeserving of redemption. Keep coming back to the font of grace and of authentic mercy, which requires repentance. Pray for us, and we'll pray for you. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated. Copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash one Peter five. If you feel we've provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.